Hello, and welcome to this episode of Me Reading Shit. Me being Jack Warder. Today, we're going to read Chapter 4 of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. So let's just get right into it. Chapter 4. Time Traveling. I told some of you last Thursday of the principles of the time machine and showed you the actual thing itself, incomplete in my workshop. There it is now, a little travel-worn, truly, and one of the ivory bars is cracked and the brass rail bent, but the rest of it's sound enough. I expected to finish it on Friday, but on Friday, when putting together was nearly done, I found that one of the nickel bars was exactly one inch too short, and this I had to get remade so that the thing was not complete until the next morning. It was 10 o'clock today that the first of all time machines began its career. I gave it a last tap, tried all the screws again, put one drop of oil on the quartz rod, and sat myself in the saddle. I was suppose a suicide who holds a pistol out to the skull feels much the same wonder at what will come next as I felt then. I took the starting lever in one hand and the stopping one in the other, Pressed the first, and almost immediately the second. I seemed to reel. I felt a nightmare sensation of falling, and looking around, I saw the laboratory exactly as before. Had anything happened? For a moment, I suspected that my intellect had tricked me. Then, I noted the clock. A moment before, as it seemed, it had stood at a minute or so past ten. Now, it was nearly half past three. I drew a breath, set my teeth, gripped the starting lever with both hands, and went off with a thud. The laboratory got hazy and went dark. Miss Watchett came in and walked, apparently without seeing me, towards the garden door. I suppose it took her a minute or so to traverse the place, but to me, she seemed to shoot across the room like a rocket. I pressed the lever over to the extreme position. The night came in like a turning of a lamp, and in another moment came by tomorrow. The laboratory grew faint and hazy, then fainter and even fainter. Tomorrow night came black, then day again, night again, day again, faster and faster still. An eddying murmur filled my ears, and a strange, dumb confusedness descended upon my mind. I'm afraid I cannot convey the peculiar sensations of time traveling. They're exclusively unpleasant. There is a feeling exactly like that one has upon a switchback of helpless, headlong motion. I felt the same horrible anticipation, too, of an imminent smash. As I put on pace, night followed day, like the flapping of a black wing. The dim suggestion of the laboratory seemed presently to fall away from me, and I saw the sun hopping swiftly across the sky, leaping it every minute, and every minute marking a day. I suppose the laboratory had been destroyed, and I'd come into the open air. I had a dim impression of scaffolding, but I was already going too fast to be conscious of any moving things. The slowest snail that ever crawled dashed by too fast for me. The twinkling succession of darkness and light was so excessively painful to the eye. Then, in an intermittent darkness, I saw the moon spinning swiftly through her quarters from new to full and had a faint glimpse of the circling stars. Presently, as I went on, Still gaining velocity, the palpitation of night and day merged into one continuous grayness. The sky took on a wonderful deepness of blue, a splendid luminous color like that of the early twilight. The jerking sun became a streak of fire, a brilliant arch in space, the moon a faint, fluctuating band. 
and I could see nothing of the stars, save now and then a bright circle flickering in the blue. The landscape was misty and vague. I was on a hillside upon the house where the house now stands, and the shoulder rose above my gray and dim. I saw trees growing, changing like puffs of vapor, now brown, now green. They grew, spread, shivered, and passed away. I saw huge buildings rise up, faint and fair, and pass like dreams. The whole surface of the earth seemed changed, melting and flowing under my eyes. The little sands upon the dials that registered my speed raced around faster and faster. Presently, I noted that the sun belt swayed up and down from solstice to solstice, in a minute or less, and that consequently my pace was over a year a minute, and minute by minute the white snow flashed across the world and vanished and was followed by the bright, brief green of spring. The unpleasant sensation of the start were less poignant now. They merged at last into a kind of a hysterical exhilaration. I remarked, indeed, a clumsy way of swaying of the machine, for which I was unable to account, but my mind was too confused to attend to it. So with a kind of madness growing upon me, I flung myself into futurity. At first I scarce thought of stopping, scarce thought of anything but these new sensations, but presently a fresh series of impressions grew up in my mind a certain curiosity, and therewith a certain dread, until at last they completely took possession of me. What strange developments of humanity, what wonderful advances upon our rudimentary civilization, I thought, might not appear when I came to look entirely into the dim, elusive world that raced and fluctuated before my eyes. I saw great and splendid architecture rising about me, more massive than any buildings of our own time, and yet, as it seemed, built of glimmer and mist, I saw richer green flow up the hillside, remain there with any wintry intermission. Even through the veil of confusion, the earth seemed very fair, and so my mind came round to the business of stopping. The peculiar risk lay in the possibility of my finding some substance in space which I, or the machine, occupied. So long as I traveled at a high velocity through time, this scarcely mattered. I was, so to speak, attenuated was slipping like vapor through the intrinsics and in intervening substances. But to come to stop involved the jamming of myself, molecule by molecule, into whatever lay in my way, meant bringing my atoms into such intimate contact with those of the obstacles that a profound chemical reaction, possibly a far-reaching explosion, would result that would blow myself and my apparatus out in all possible dimensions, into the unknown." This possibility had occurred to me again and again while I was making the machine, but then I had cheerfully accepted it as an unavoidable risk, one of the risks a man has got to take. Now the risk was inevitable, and I no longer saw, the same, saw it in the same cheerful light. The fact is that, insensibly, the absolute strangeness of, any, of everything, the sickly jarring swaying of the machine above all, the feeling of prolonged falling, had absolutely upset my nerves. I told myself that I could never stop, and with a gust of petulance, I resolved to stop forthwith. Like an impatient fool, I lugged over the letter, and incontinently the thing went reeling over, and I was flung headlong through the air. There was a sudden sound of clap of thunder in my ears. I may have been stunned for a moment. A pitiless hail was hissing around me, and I was sitting on soft turf in front of an overset machine. Everything still seemed gray, but presently I remarked that the confusion in my ears was gone. I looked round me. I was on... I was on what seemed to be a little lawn in a garden surrounded by rhododendron hedges, and I noticed that their mauve and purple blossoms were dropping in a shower under the beating of the hailstones.
The rebounding, dancing hail hung in a little cloud over the machine, and moving along the ground like smoke. In a moment, I was wet to the skin. Fine hospitality, I said, to a man who has traveled innumerably years to see you. Presently, I thought what a fool I was to get wet. I stood up and looked round me. A colossal figure, carved apparently in some white stone, loomed indistinctly beyond the rhododendrons though the hazy, through the hazy downpour, that all else of the world was invisible. My sensations would be hard to describe. As the columns of hail grew thinner, I saw a white figure more distinctly. It was a very large, for a silver birch tree touched its shoulders. It was of white marble, in shape something like a winged sphinx, but the wings, instead of being carried vertically at the sides, were spread so that it seemed to hover. The pedestal, it appeared to me, was of bronze and was thick with verdigris. It chanced that the face was towards me, the sightless eyes seemed to watch me, there was a faint shadow of smile on the lips. It was a greatly weather-worn and the imparted an unpleasant suggestion of disease. I stood looking at for a small space, half a minute perhaps, or half an hour. It seemed to advance, to recede as the hail drove it denser or thinner. At last I tore my eyes from it for the moment and saw the hail curtain had worn threadbare and that the sky was lightening with the promise of sun. I looked up again at the crouching white shape. Full temerity of my voyage suddenly came upon me. What might appear when the lazy curtain had altogether withdrawn? What might not have happened to men? What if cruelty had grown so common in passion? What if the interval race had lost its manliness and had developed into some inhuman, insympathetic, overwhelmingly powerful? I might seem old-world savage, only the dreadful and disgusting for our common likeness. A foul creature with incontinently slain. Already I saw the other shapes, huge buildings with intricate parapets and tall columns, with a wooded hillside dimly creeping in upon me through the lessening storm. I was seized with panic and fear, turning frantically to the time machine and strove hard to readjust it. As I did, so the shafts of sun smote through the thunderstorm. The gray, gray downpour was swept aside and vanished like the trailing garments of a ghost. Above me, in the intense blue of the summer sky, some faint brown shreds of cloud whirled into nothingness. The great buildings above me stood out clear and distinct, shining with the wet of a thunderstorm, and picked up out in white by the unmeltable hailstones piled along their courses. I felt naked in a strange world. I felt as perhaps a bird may feel in the clean air, knowing hawks' wings above them will swoop. My fear grew into frenzy. I took breathing space, set my teeth, and again fiercely wrist and knee with the machine. I gave under my desperate onset and turned over. It struck my chin violently again. One hand on the saddle, the other on the lever. I stood, panting heavily, in the attitude mount again. But with the recovery of a prompt retreat of my courage recovered, I looked more curiously and less fearfully at the world of the remote future. In a circular opening, high in the wall of the nearer house, I saw a group of figures clad in soft, rich robes. They had seen me. Their faces were directed towards me. Then I heard the voices approaching me, coming through the bushes by the white sphinx where the heads and shoulders of men were running. One of these emerged from the pathway leading straight into the little lawn upon which I stood with my machine. He was a slight creature, perhaps four feet high, clad in a purple tunic, girdled at the waist with a leather belt. Sandals or buskins, I could not clearly distinguish wish, were on his feet. His legs were bare to the knees. His head was bare. Noticing that, I noticed for the first time how warm the air was. He struck me as a very beautiful and graceful creature, but indescribably fail. His flushed face reminded me of the beautiful kind of consumptive, that hectic beauty of which we hear so much. At the sight of him, I suddenly regained my confidence. 
I took my hands from the machine.